Okay, so if you're just joining us, we have been going uh, this semester uh, to taking a trip. Brian has led us through a trip through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a little bit of an obscure Old Testament book, and one that you, you, you've, you've certainly found uh, interpreters sometimes don't exactly know what to do with uh, because it's peculiar uh, and doesn't necessarily have like what we would call a, a sunny, upbeat message to, <laughs> to it. And yet, we've also discovered that um, it's a very realistic book uh, because it's trying to sort of generate some discussion among us about why life can be as difficult as it can be and man's search to try to find meaning in his daily existence. Now remember, uh, the one who is the author of the book is not necessarily taking the posture of what we would call uh, a teacher. Uh, he's more taking the posture of a, of a small group leader um, <clears throat> small group leaders are really good. I think I mentioned this last week. There's, someone used to say that there's, there's teachers that are, are uh, bankers and there's teachers that are uh, midwives. A banker is one that is sort of uh, uh, dealing with deposits. They're there to deposit things on you. Here is the teaching. Here is the learning. You know, it comes down. It's necessary. You got to have them. But there's other people that are more skilled, like midwives, of helping you give birth to good ideas right? Um, the, where you have, you know, uh, saith the teacher, or whatever your translation says, it's the, it's the, it's the um, Hebrew word koheleth. And koheleth is much more of a small group leader. He's not there necessarily to give you answers. He's there rather to get you to ask better questions and to get you leading your way into some other sort of, uh, uh, of ideas. Um, but what I want to do this morning is, is do something that um, uh, Tim Keller did probably 20 some odd years ago uh, uh, in, a, in a small group material that he had assembled together on the book of Ecclesiastes, where he, and actually along with him, uh, author uh, Sinclair Ferguson, began to realize that there really is not a better Old Testament book to deal with the, um, the, 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 the sort of spirit of the age where we find ourselves in the early 21st century, okay? Um, and that in Ecclesiastes, you have really a powerful, um, if I use the word apologetic, do you know what I mean when I say that? Um, the study of apologetics in Christian uh, uh, work is the study of defending the faith. Uh, apologetics comes from the Greek word apology. We think of an apology of repentance and saying we're sorry. That's not what it meant to the Greeks. To the Greeks, it was a defense. It was like, justify yourself, okay? Tell us exactly why it is that you uh, embrace what you embrace. That was an apologetic. And what Keller and Ferguson began to notice was, is the book of Ecclesiastes is really a very powerful statement to the world of saying, you know what? We, 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 we will show you something realistic about your life that you may think that we as um, religious people uh, aren't willing to look at. Okay, so what I want to do this morning is look at the, the beginning of this particular uh, 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 discussion from Ecclesiastes 1 verse 3, which I would argue, and, and Keller and Ferguson definitely argue this, <clears throat> is really the question of the whole book. The question that hangs over the book of Ecclesiastes, and again, I want to, I want to treat this as if it's an apologetic to outsiders, is this question that comes to you in chapter 1 verse 3 that says, look, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
Now I'm assuming that Brian has done all the work he's supposed to do on that little phrase, under the sun, and what the, the writer means by it. Very simply, he's just saying that if you take the world for only what you can see in the visible sense, you're going to experience all the frustrations that the writer is experiencing. But notice what he says. He says, what does man gain? The writer is, is, is asking a question which is basically saying this, the more experience that you get in life, the further that you go on in life, the less sense it's going to make. That's the challenge, which is really a depressing, very <laughs> in-your-face thought, is it not? The longer you think about life, the more you really press it, the more nauseating it's gonna get. What in the world do I gain through everything that I've done, all of my work, all of my efforts, all of my striving, all of my desires, all the striving after things, what do I have to show for it in the very end? And this is what's going to bother you about the book of Ecclesiastes, because when it's all said and done, when he asks you, tell me what you have to show for your life after it's all done, he's not going to answer the question. <laughs> He leaves it hanging out there, which is one of the reasons why the book of Ecclesiastes kind of rubs people the wrong way, and they don't know what to do with it, because we like for life to kind of make sense. Where's the moral of the story, right? Get to the point. Uh, could you resolve this in a nice, neat little package? So don't you see that the very form of Ecclesiastes is preaching the message that it's trying to say? Yeah, I'm not going to give you a tidy answer in this book. I'm not going to give you something where it all ties up in a neat little bow, because life very rarely feels like it ties up in a neat little bow. Now look, I know what you're all thinking. You're being like, <clears throat> uh, yeah, but Jesus. <laughs> and you're right. You're completely right. And we're going to get to that at the very end of this morning's discussion. But I don't think that you can actually arrive there until you've gone through Koheleth's path. That, I think, is what Ecclesiastes is saying. And let's be honest. <laughs> you don't have to just go through it once. Life comes with these regular experiences of feeling rattled by stuff, things that happen to you that make you look and be like, I, I, I don't know if I can believe all this. I don't know if I can really follow this. And what happens is, is the world sort of comes in and presents you with some false options. In other words, there are answers that when you begin to look around your life and say, what is life for? Like, what is my life accomplishing? What difference am I making in the world? That the world will grant you three unsatisfactory answers. And my guess is, for the people that you live in around in life, that you do life with, whether you work with them, whether you are with them in your neighborhood, whatever, however you interact with people, my guess is, is that they have stumbled across one of these three ways of looking at life. And what we're going to find is, is if we can be better equipped to see why those ways of dealing with life are unsatisfactory, we can be better equipped to send them to the answer that we really do know exists, right? Okay, so let's look at a couple of these. The first answer that I want to look at or that Keller looks at is what he calls the humanistic answer, okay? What is the humanistic answer to the problem of what, if, what is life for? Well, these are people who say to themselves, well, look, I realize that none of it makes any sense. I realize that there's no purpose. When I die, I'm just going to blip out of existence. There is no there, there. There is no heaven. But I want to have a sense that at the end of my life, I made the world a better place. 
I tried to make the world more livable. I, I tried to be one of those people uh, that um, uh, you know, left the world ever so slightly happier than it was when I, when I started in. Now here's the point. Koheleth, <laughs> Ecclesiastes, looks at that answer and is like, no offense, but that's utter nonsense. That's complete nonsense. And then he begins to unpack it for you. Why? How? Well, <clears throat> let me ask you a question first of all. How many of you have direct memories of your great-grandparents? Direct memories. Okay, okay. Uh, maybe like a third of the room, less than a third or so. Your great-grandparents. Um, how long do you think you could talk about your experience with your great-grandparents? Like, of the data that you have. How many of you, let's, for those of you that remember the great-grandparents, how many of you know your great-grandparents' birthday? Oh, look at that. Two people, that's impressive. How many of you know uh, their wedding date? I got you on that one. But it's probably a big deal to them, don't you think? How many know their, their specific death date? Remember that? Okay, we got death and birth on, on the list. People, <laughs> we've got some gene genealogical people in the room. That's good to know. But isn't that crazy that just basically two generations ago, we know a little bit, <laughs> but not all that much. We, and here we are, just a few, how many generations later, two generations later, and even we have trouble remembering exactly what they were about. I remember what my great, I do have memories of my great-grandmother and my great-grandfather. I'm named after my great-grandfather. Uh, um, my great-grandfather was William Lester Carnell. It's, it's the word carnal, C-A-R-N-A-L. They pronounced it Carnell for obvious reasons. It's a rough name to come over from uh, uh, Ireland with. Um, but I'm William Lester Newsom. My father, by the way, could not pronounce uh, uh, the name Lester. Uh, and uh, so I always remembered my great-grandfather as Daddy Ecky, because that's all my father could get out was Daddy Ecky. His, his wife was Carrie, so it was Mama Carrie and Daddy Ecky. <laughs> so anyway, that's, but are you ready for this? That's about the extent of my knowledge. I got some old pictures of him, and I kind of had his dark features. Of course, he was gray like me when he was, I think he died when he was 80 or something. But again, I don't remember. That was kind of a big deal to him though, right? But I still don't remember, and I'm just two generations away. My point is, is there going to be anybody to remember you after you fall? And Koheleth is like, no, there's not. In two generations, people will be kind of like, Steve Wood, I think was his name. I, th I, think, I think that was his name. I don't remember his wife's name. I think it was Janet. It started with a J. I'm sorry, Judy. Everybody's going to remember you, Judy. And, Judy and Steve will be remembered for eons and eons because they'll be different. But that's the struggle, isn't it? of like, am I ever gonna be remembered? <laughs> um, could it be that therefore, since no one's going to remember, is it, is that, is it, could it be that my life doesn't mean anything? Is my life just one more life? Am I just one more life? And of course, Kahela comes along to you and just goes, ah, yeah, that's exactly right. You got it. Especially when you consider life under the sun. Look, that's this philosopher's way of talking about everything that there is, okay? And this assumption is that there's only, the only life that we have is the life that we can see, taste, smell, feel, touch, whatever, which is a very modern approach, by the way. Most people think that you've gotten to the real answer when you discover the scientific answer, or if you will, the, the empirically verifiable answer. Don't we deal with this? It's really, it's, what is this commercial that keeps coming on that ends when, um, oh yeah, science did that. 
Do y'all notice that? And, and, and it's, it's this way of being like, da, 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 da. it's a quoting and authority. Now, I'm not anti-science, am I, Greg? I'm not anti-science. Greg doesn't think, neither is Greg anti-science either. Um, and he's a scientist, which is kind of fun. We're not anti-science, but what happens is, is when we start to wrestle with world life under the sun, we think that if I can just answer it scientifically, then I've come to the answer. And health is kind of like, honestly, if that's all you've got, <laughs> this very modern approach, then basically what you've got is you've created nothing but utter subject, subjectivity. People say, we can't really know if there's a God. Some people feel there is. Maybe everybody has the right to their religion. But when it comes down to it, it's a private thing, a subjective private thing. But the fact is that really nobody can be sure about God. That's the modern thinking. And what they're saying is, is therefore I've made a decision to live in the now. I want to live in the now. I want to do what's right by me. I want to sort of live by my own desires, my own particular uh, uh, approach to life with life as it is under the sun. <clears throat> now look, in that case, if all of our history of organic life on this planet, e even if, if it's a billion years long, it's still just like a flash in the pan. And when it's gone, it's gone utterly. And nothing, nothing that you've ever done can ever make any difference in the final analysis if that is where the whole thing ends. And you can understand now why you might build a culture who decided to build its life with no reference to an eternal world, with only life under the sun. We really don't want to go there, do we? So what do we do? We deny the existence of death. We, we actually close ourselves off from it. We obsess over lengthening life. We make sure that we don't ever look like we're aging, ever, right? We, we, go, we, undergo, we undergo the knife before we look like we're aging, right? Not only that, we also make sure that we never deal with death. Um, <laughs> no, I can't tell that story. I can't tell that story. Don't tempt me. Um, but have you ever noticed that like when someone passes away, how antiseptic it is? Someone passes away and it's this incredibly awkward thing where you wait for the coroner to arrive and then an ambulance comes and then poof, you never see him again. Now, sometimes we have open casket funerals where people come by and they see and whatever else, and people argue whether that's healthy or not for people to do. But it used to be, it used to be that the body sort of laid in state for like a while because the coroner had to make it around to you eventually. But don't you recognize how that makes perfect sense <laughs> to a culture who can't really wrap their mind around the fact of what they know to be true, that if this world is all there is, then you can do whatever you want to to fake like you're conjuring meaning. It's just never going to happen. Not going to happen. Um, so for people who put their hope in a political so solutions to change the world, Koheleth is going to look at you and just laugh at you. Who cares if you change the world if the whole ship is going down anyway? To, to what end? What value? Because to say something is valuable <laughs> implies that there is such a thing as a value. But there can't be values when everything's going to blink out of existence on the other side of organic life. So Koheleth is coming and saying, yeah, fine. I mean, hey, you know, you want to take up your save the world kind of thing? Knock yourself out. Go save the animals. Uh, save the, the deforestation, whatever. <laughs> uh, it's not going to mean a thing if all you have is life under the sun. Right? If that's all you've got. Do you start to feel that there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a compelling apologetic here for people? Let's go to the second one. I'm running out of time here. 
This one is the one that I want to talk about next week a little more because I think it's a little more applicable to Oxford, Mississippi. And that is the hedonistic uh, uh, answer. Uh, the hedonistic answer basically says this. You know what? There are no answers in life. But you know what there are? There are pleasures. Hmm. There's times in which I can make myself feel happy. And so I'm just going to go and explore all of those. Uh, wine, women, and song. Uh, look, look for whatever, you know, I can find joy in, in the moment. Some people are not so crass, right? They're going to be like, you know, just, just look for something you could take delight in the little simple pleasures. A walk through the woods, read, read Thoreau while you're waltzing through there or something like, I don't know. I'm not sure why Thoreau came in my head. Um, Keller quotes from Woody Allen's uh, movie, uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors, where Woody Allen says, all you can do and hope for meaning in life is just to simply enjoy the pleasures of the day. Creativity. Sit down and write a poem. Um, hug a child. Uh, take a ride on a boat on a lake. Uh, enjoy your family. Enjoy work. Because honestly, that's really all you can do. Which, interestingly enough, makes you realize why it is that paganism would end up worshiping nature the way in which it does. Because you have to. If all there is is the natural world, there's nothing left to worship except the natural world. And so what we do is we have to deify, make, uh, make, make godlike, the natural world around us. So it's not just a walk in the woods. It's a healing time for me. Uh, Jacques Minot said, a Pulitzer Prize winning French biologist says, do you know why we exist? Our number came up like in a Monte Carlo game. Monte Carlo is a European uh, casino uh, district. We, we won in the crapshoot. We are accidentally created by a universe to be conscious of the facts that we are accidents, <laughs> right? Basically, we are grown up germs. Hooray. You, you came to church for a good reason. You are a grown-up germ. But what, what he's saying is every time someone just tries to say, look, all you got is just try to have a little bit of fun in this life. If people say that and embrace that, you're like, okay, but own the fact that that is a bit depressing. And does not that knowledge rob you of the joy of the thing? One of the things that C.S. Lewis was one of the best ones to talk about, and we'll get into this more next week, Pleasures in life are what they are because they feel like eternity. They always do because we want them to last forever. We feel and we sense that we were built for those pleasures to last forever. We know that there's something inside those pleasures. Let me give an example. So what, what is the worst day of your best vacation? I love to ask this question. Let's say you got a chance to be gone for 10 days Okay, one, two, three, four, five, all the way to day 10. What day on that vacation is the worst day of that vacation? Everybody knows the answer to this. The last day. You want to know why? Because it's over. I got to go back tomorrow. I can only imagine the stack of work that's on my desk. I know I left so-and-so in charge, but they're utterly incompetent. <laughs> how many phone calls am I going to have to make? Oh, I don't know. Sometimes it's how people come into church, by the way. It's like, well, you know, this is nice, Pastor, but tomorrow it's back to the real world, which is an insulting thing to say, by the way. So what are you doing here? This is the fake world? I don't know. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but you see, the, the, the knowledge that it's going to end ruins the pleasure, doesn't it? Um, I'm going to go on vacation, but it's just for a couple of nights. Well, that's a downer. We want the vacation to be forever. <laughs> we want to always feel that way. 
here's what, here's what the, the, the person is saying. The only way that I can finally really enjoy music, fall in love with somebody, hug a child, and enjoy it is if I stop thinking about reality. Now you realize why drugs are a natural, that's a good idea, if all you have is life under the sun. Because at least it can detach you, therefore, from reality. And for a little while, I can forget. That's why people crawl into the bottom of a bottle. <laughs> it's not about the day drinking. I'm trying to work on my day drinking. No, 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 you're not. You're trying to deaden what we know to be true, that all I have is life under the sun. I'm living with life. I'm living with the assumptions, even if I've come to church, I'm living with the assumptions of the world around me that all we have is life under the sun. And here's Koheleth pushing, pushing you to that. Like, yep, yep, keep going, keep going. Get there if you can. Finally, last answer. I want want y'all to ask some questions. I'm interested in how you're processing this. We have what we would call the existentialist answer. What is that? Well, the existentialist basically looks and says this. It says, you know what? You're exactly right. Life is meaningless. But you know what? Let the world be meaningless. I will not. This is is sort of the way which uh, uh, Nietzsche dealt with this. Nietzsche was a philosopher who came along and said, of course, there is no God. We've done that. He's out. It doesn't make any sense. But you know what? The best of people are those who kind of face, face the awfulness, they face the darkness, and they stare it down and say, you know what? I'm going to conjure myself meaning regardless of how you're pitching it to me. I'm going to go get meaning for my own. Um, so I did this little research on, on something that uh, uh, Ferguson had mentioned, uh, a psychotherapist named R.D., it's either Lange or Lang, can't pronounce that name, um, A Divided Self. He wrote this famous book called A Divided Self. And in it he decided <laughs> um, that since life is cruel and senseless, if I was going to live a humane uh, existence, if I was going to try to be a compassionate person, if I was going to work on that, The only way to do that is is if I'm out of touch with reality. And so he came to this conclusion. This is where you're like, wow, you wrote a book on this. That the more compassionate you are, the more insane you are. Because you're not being real. You're living out of accord with things. And of course, Koheleth would have been like, ooh, ooh, listen to what Lang is saying. He's been like, that guy's got it. Because if this is where you start, you can't build anything off uh, off of it. Um, uh, the man of La Mancha. Anybody know the, anybody know the story of the man of La Mancha? Here it is. Who is the man of La Mancha? Give me a quick, quick update there, Anna. What did he do? What did Don Quixote do? That's right. He was trying to slay giants by chasing after windmills, right? That's what, uh, that's what he does. And the question throughout the whole uh, show, man of La Mancha is, is the guy insane or is he not? He's there railing, you know, against the insanity of life around him by doing what? By simply believing in chivalry, believing in his own knighthood. And that's the great question that hangs over the, over the show. Is, is he crazy or is he not? Because there's some people that are being like, I don't know. He's got a point. He may look crazy to everybody else, but maybe he's just sort of raging against the machine and the rest of us are walking along like lemmings. That's the feeling. And again, it sounds so noble, of course, but the problem is, <laughs> Whenever you decide to choose what you're going to do that you define as compassionate, how do you know that's compassion? Well, because it, uh, it brings the most good to the most people. Okay, what is good for people? You know, mass murderers think that it's good for people to be rid of your existence and to be executed. 
So are we all going to live on everybody's self-definition of good? (laughs) And by the way, ours is the first generation to be like, yeah, we're going to give that a try. That's what's happening. The only sort of standard that sort of comes out of this particular rising generation, and don't, don't, it's not the young people, it's us. We've all imbibed it. The only standard that's come out is the standards of my feelings. So if I feel like I'm a person of the opposite sex, then I must be, right? That's the standard that sort of comes in there. <laughs> um, and so the question that, that comes in is if, you've only, if you're only living life under the sun, you finally don't have any sort of common, common denominator of what common sense and decency is. How do you discern what is and is not? Verse 17 of, of, of Ecclesiastes 1 says, you can't say that heaven is unfair if you don't have a standard for fairness at all. Right? You can't look and say, well, you know, you, you guys get to go to heaven just because you believed in Jesus. I just don't think that's fair to the sincere other people. Okay, okay, we can deal with the question of that, how God reveals himself. That's a somewhat complicated question. But do you realize that you've got a bigger problem? Your problem is you don't even know what a standard of fair is. It's a difficult pill, but one that actually, uh, 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 you know, uh, yeah, one that sobers us. Because here's, here's the sobering thought, and this is from Ferguson. He says, either there is a God, either there is a life above the heavens, uh, there is a God that created you, a God that will judge you, a God that has standards in life, that is an extension of his own personality. Either there is a life, there is afterlife, there is an eternity. Either there's a God or else everything else is utterly futile. Like there's nothing else in the middle. <laughs> either we are sold out to him, either we know him, either we are sure that there's a God and know that he is my life, or everything is hopeless. That's the deal. And of course in Ecclesiastes, you don't get an answer. <laughs> That's not his job. His job is not to give you the answer to that question. He's the discussion leader, remember? He's leading a discussion trying to get you to the end of that. Well, the answer as it comes to us doesn't come until the New Testament, but it comes to us in a very interesting way in John chapter 1, Keller argues. And what he says there is John opens his uh, his gospel in John chapter 1 with a very pregnant vocabulary word. He says, in the beginning was the word. Now that word, word, Uh, was not just like what you and I know as word, like a written word, a word on a page, or a word that is a collection of of letters that create meaning, right? The word is a philosophical concept that would have been known very well to people in Greek times. Uh, the The Greek word there behind is the word logos. You've heard that. And logos was far more than a designation. It was more of like a your reason for life. Your logos was one that you came and said, uh, this is this thing's purpose. The logos of this thing is its final designation. So let's say that you came to uh, my house and you looked at me and you you said, what's going, what's wrong? And I said, well, I'm having trouble with my popcorn machine. Uh, It's not coming out cooked very well. Everything that comes out is soggy. Uh, It's kind of brown. It just isn't working very well. And you walk over to look at my popcorn machine and you're kind of like, hmm, I think I may have discovered the problem. Uh, this is an espresso maker. Um, and when you put your corn in there, that probably didn't get what you wanted out of it, right? Um, in other words, what you, you could look and say, you're not using this particular machine in accordance with its logos. Does that make sense? Your logos is your purpose. It's what you were made for. It's why you exist. It's your, 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 your centering idea. 
And so what John is opening up his gospel and saying is, there is a logos to life. It does exist. In many ways, John 1.1 is the answer that you were looking for in Kohelet's questions. But here's what's interesting. The logos in life is not a truth that is brought to you by a person. Okay? Jesus does not come to you as a guru per se. It is not truth that is brought to you by a person. It is truth that is a person. This is where Christianity gets extraordinarily unique because the logos is not in the way in which the Greeks would have thought of it as and that it still bled over into Roman culture was not an abstract concept. The logos, John is saying, is not an abstract principle that you sit around with the rest of your learned friends (laughs) and theorize over. That's not what the logos is. The logos is not something that you can find in a book. The Logos is a human being. That's what's so amazing about those opening verses. That in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. But then he came and did what? He tabernacled among us. He dwelt with us. He hung out with us. He took on human flesh with us. And while we were here, we beheld his glory the glory of the only begotten one. And when you know this one, when you behold his glory, John says, at that moment, you, uh, you're gonna, you, and you serve them, you will ultimately find the only reason for life. And how that works is what we're going to talk about next week. But the point is, <laughs> is that right now counts forever. Everything means everything, or else nothing means anything. And of all of our great apologetics that we have to the world, apologetic, of all our great defenses that we have to those who doubt uh, 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 religion in general and other things uh, in, in, in particulars, um, We can know that a million years from now, um, uh, we have the benefit of saying even random conversations we have mean something. Because again, if Koheleth is pushing you to despair, John is rescuing you to rescue everything in your life. Even stuff that you call mundane. Why do you get Jesus saying these strange little cryptic things like this, where he's like, look, even if you give a small little cup of water to a child, it'll never be forgotten. Now that's amazing. A small little act of service to a little child of a cup of water will ring throughout the halls of heaven forever. It's the other reason why Jesus says, you know what, every single idle word that you said, you're gonna give an account for. Now, chatty people like myself, that that brings us to our knees, right? I'm going to die um, (laughs) in thinking about that. Of course, but why, does Jesus, why is Jesus able to do that? Unless he understands that he is the Logos, and when you come to know him, you know your purpose. And that doesn't sort of like, that doesn't just neutralize the scary questions that Koheleth brought up. It actually also rescues your mundane life. But that little experience that you're going through is not meaningless. That diaper, that dirty diaper that you are changing, right, for the umpteenth time. I had a friend of mine one time, speaking of diapers, this is when the elders get nervous. And I was like, what's he going to say? Great. Um, I had a friend of mine, I'm not making this up, who has two sets of identical twins 18 months apart from each other. And suddenly this man, you don't know him, but you, just, you, you have pity on his family. They're actually grown now. They're, the, 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 the older sets are in college. And anyway, they, they worship at our church on a regular basis. Two sets of identical twins, 18 months apart. And so one of the things that we required when I was in campus ministry of our um, campus ministers 
was uh, that when, when the wives went away for a wives retreat, they had a long weekend on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, where we'd let them go for a wives retreat. We'd have special speakers and just some time for them to complain about being a campus minister's wife. <laughs> As we talked through that with each other, um, uh, we made the husband stay at home with the, the, with the children. Like you're not allowed to pass these off to in-laws. Mm-mm. You absolutely cannot do that. You must do it yourself. You must do her job for yourself for that entire weekend. And the most fun thing in the world was watching our little email listserv with the reports coming in about how they were doing. And it was amazing. On Saturday night, uh, <laughs> uh, this guy had said with his two sets of identical twins, he said, yes, I just changed my 36th diaper in the last four days. So yeah, I've had about enough of waiting for her to come back. Can you imagine? two sets of identical twins. But of course, what's the encouragement that you have to someone who's buried in that kind of world? It's like, guess what though? None of those were wasted. None of that was wasted. Even the mundane things that I do, I look back with encouragement that Jesus still uses those things. Any thoughts, any questions? Again, an apologetic look at it, right? We have the, the, these, these humanistic answers, uh, these hedonistic answers and the existential answers. What I want to look at next week is uh, the question of, um, uh, of hedonism and our search for pleasure and how do we deal with the joys in life. Questions or thoughts? I went longer than it should. I shouldn't have told the diaper story. I should have left more time for questions. Yeah, do in large measure to one dude, Joe Rogan. Um, Joe Rogan still, I think, has the number one podcast in the country. I think that's right. And Rogan is a very self-avowed Stoic. Yeah, the Stoics, this is a great example. The Stoics would have been your classic humanist, almost existentialist, because they were like, look, what the, the purpose of life is to live the virtuous life. And the virtues come to us uh, from arbitrary sources, we're all in the back whispering, but that's the idea is to become a self-disciplined person, to become someone who really uh, gears down, which is why they sell, you know, creatine powder and whatever else they're all trying to bulk up. I couldn't believe how big Rogan had gotten. The last time I saw him interview, it was huge. But that's the idea. Um, this is a resurgence that's going on. Uh, and a lot of people are finding it. It's, it's some of the offshoot that you're getting from the, the new right. Uh, your children have let you hear about guys like Jordan Peterson. Uh, Joe Rogan's in that group. Um, um, who's, the, who's the Jewish fella? Um, ben Shapiro. All the people from the Daily Beast. That particular ilk of people. Many of them have avowed stoicism uh, as part of their underlying philosophy of why they're doing what they're doing. Very interesting. Very interesting development. The only reason I mentioned that is is because you can say, I never heard of stoics. That's fine. But the Daily Beast pulls in millions of dollars a day from their media outlets. So it's a clearly an influence. Um, yeah, I, I don't have time to go into the fact of, does that mean that everything from the Daily Beast is bad? No. Does it mean that everything is good? No. No Christian ever takes things that way. We always look at folks and we're looking for where Jesus has put his fingerprints and we're looking where sin has put its fingerprints in every cultural artifact that comes to us. I hate that I got to give that qualifier, but I do. I got one more minute. Any other thoughts? That's a great one, Craig. I hadn't thought about stoicism. Should have used that as an illustration. Would have been much better than the diaper illustration, let's be honest. <laughs> it's just fun to think about somebody changing diapers for two sets of identical twins. Apparently, some medical anomaly. Doug's going to tell us the, what the percentage is. It's, it's rare, right? One in a million? Something like that? All the pediatricians are like, wow. 
All right, next week, come back and we'll talk about hedonism next week as we move forward. So let me pray for us as we finish. Lord Jesus, as we move into worship, we pray that you would center our thoughts on you so that we might continue to learn and realize that it's quite tragic to think of a life without you. The fool uh, has said in his heart that there is no God, the psalmist says. And so as we deal with the world around us, it seems to be secularizing, at least in the West. Uh, we have to live as, as aliens uh, a bit more probably as we go forward. And so prepare us, we pray, with the message of Koheleth and of Ecclesiastes that we might be better prepared to lead people to the Lagos, lead people to you so that they might learn in you what the life is really about. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.